Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. And, uh, relatively new or brand new, my name is Pastor Gil. And down in the blue, for those that are, feel like they want to be a little more endearing, uh, some of the people, many of the people that are closest to me call me PG, Pastor Gil, in case you didn't make that connection. Uh, but thank you for being here this morning. Um, <clears throat> hey, this is a really important uh, Sunday for us. Every Sunday is important, but this is another one of those milestones because we started a theme this year, and we felt like the Lord put it on our heart that as a church, we're going to spend the whole year redeveloping a heart for the house. That means for God's house and all the things that that involved, and re-engaging our hands in the harvest. And we've talked about that. The way we're going to do it is we felt initially that we were going to look, re-look at a kind of a big umbrella topic in the Bible, and that's called a theology of place. Now, don't get all confused by the word theology. Some people just check out, oh, this is, you know, this is for pastors or for theologians. And we're talking about three places that God's designed. That our lives should be moving in and out of these places all the time. They're God-designed. They're God-ordained. They're what keeps us healthy, starting in the innermost part in our spirit. But then Proverbs chapter 4 says, that's where the source of the rest of our life comes from. And if we can be healthy in the spiritual place of our heart, then we can be healthy, healthy in every other place, including our relationships and our businesses and, and, and the things that we do for fun. All of those things just get better and brighter because this is the way God's designed it. Well, the theology of place encompasses three different locations. We started in the month of January and we focused on the secret place. And that's where we spend time daily with God, deeply with God, opening up the most personal part of who we are, not trying to put on, you know, put on some kind of a religious facade, not trying to negotiate, well, you know, I'm this or that, not running away from him when we don't feel quite as spiritual, but that's the very time we need to run to him and say, hey, I'm feeling a little dry. I'm feeling pretty vulnerable. I'm a little unnerved right now. I need some help. In the secret place is where God begins to connect with us and begin to speak and instruct and lead and guide the the deepest part of who we are. We use this thing called 30 for 30. Uh, There's still cards out there. You can grab one. If you didn't engage with us, start today. 30 days, learning to spend time in God's Word, studying and praying and journaling. It's pretty simple, and you'll be amazed because this is not something mystical or magical. God, the God of the universe, the one who created you, the living Jesus, literally shows up and spends time with you, and you learn to develop a real-time relationship with Him. The second thing then that we talked, the place we wanted to talk about, we're going to start today, and it's called The Gathering Place. In the gathering place, it really is the church. And really the big theme is found in like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, when, it's, when the author there says, whatever you do, as you see the days approaching, do not forsake the assembling of yourself together as the manner of some people are. In other words, you're going to see that this becomes more and more of a, a cop, of a culture, more and more popular, more and more acceptable, but don't lean into that. 
Instead, you hold fast and you do not forsake the assembling of yourself together with the believers. Gather together with like-minded believers. And he said, and pay a special attention when it gets to the end times, because in the last days, we don't know if we got, you know, till this afternoon, or if we got 10 years or 100 years left, we don't know that. But we're supposed to live every moment as if Jesus is coming back. I mean, like he could come back before the end of the service. And he says, whatever you do, don't forget the assembling of yourself together, especially as you see the, the last days, the cultural drift, especially when you see that happen, man, just don't give in to that. Don't allow that to be justified in your own heart. So this would be a great time for me to say, for those of you that are watching online, uh, live streaming, listen, this is not any in any way a bad reflection on you. This is not a, a condemnation. This, this is us coming back to the word of God and encouraging you. For some of you, I get it. Uh, it's a struggle for you to be here, health reasons or whatever. Others have, you know, job situations. Listen, there's no pressure. We love the fact that you're with us and you're joining us and you're here when you can. But for those of you that have become accustomed through the COVID era of just taking advantage of online and feeling like, well, I really don't need to be there. It's not much of a difference. I'm getting the message anyway. I want to encourage you to open your heart and let the Holy Spirit share some things with you today as we begin a month long leaning into what it means to be the gathering place. Well, if we had to put a definition to it, Broadly, we would say the gathering place is where believers come together for the purposes of worshiping God. That's inviting his presence in so we can be in his presence of ministering to one another. That would be encouraging and touching base, making sure we're taking care of each other, doing life together, uh, and also for, to build up his church, to build up the, the group of believers so that we could accomplish what the Lord has for us. And if you brought a Bible, I want you to open it to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to grab a theme verse out of there. But while you're turning, let me kind of remind you of a, uh, a, little, a little story. It's actually a 1952 Disney cartoon that they took from this ancient uh, fable that literally was told in almost every country around the world. And uh, they, they kind of put a cartoon to it and they called it Lambert the Sheepish Lion. And you're probably familiar with it in some version or another. It's all about a young lion cub that was uh, abandoned uh, when he was very tiny and he was raised by a flock of sheep. And so as he grows up and you kind of look through the pictures or you're watching the cartoon, he grows up, it becomes more obvious that he's not like all of the other family. He's very different, but he just works hard to adapt and he lives as a sheep. And all of that happens until one day as he's becoming, you know, kind of coming into himself, one day the wolf comes. And the wolf is stalking the flock and finally picks out the one sheep that he wants to snatch. And it happens to be Lambert's adopted mom, who's also a sheep. And he's dragging her away. And at first, Lambert does what all the other sheep does, right? He runs and he hides and run, running away from the wolf. But as he's listening to the cries of his mom being dragged away by the wolf, something inside of Lambert snaps. And he doesn't know where it comes from. All of a sudden, there's this boldness. There's this ferociousness. And like from the inside to the outside, Lambert stands up and sits up. And he lets out this giant roar. And when he does, all of a sudden, the wolf hears that. And the wolf freezes, drops his mom, and just runs away in terror. 
And, and as a result of that, not only was Lambert's mom saved, but the entire flock was saved, all because Lambert remembered who he was. We have a real dire situation happening in our world today. And it really comes around the fact that the church cannot remember who it is. It's so confused right now. There's so many different versions of so many different things with so many different gospels and so many different approaches. And it's not just that everybody silos, you know, and is kind of doing their own thing. It's that now because we have this thing called the internet and we have social media, now it, it paints itself, it pits itself unintentionally for the most part, but it pits itself against each other and becomes competitive, becomes conflicting. And so it causes people that are trying to be part of a church to be pulled this way and that way and this focus and this message. And I think I like that better. And that seems fun today. And what about this over here? And the whole message, the whole idea of what the church is all about has really been lost. And yet the Bible promises us that as Jesus gets closer at some point and in some way that only Jesus knows how to do it, that this thing's going to begin to come back together. The church is going to begin to be reminded of who it is. The church is going to stand up, is going to sit up once again and take its rightful place. And as it does, people's lives are going to be changed, starting with the people in the church and then leading to the people outside of the church. But for today, I'm telling you, the battle rages. Now, we live in a country where we've never really faced war, at least not on our shores. Uh, we've been tangled up overseas, and some of you have been affected by that, by people that you love being in the military. Maybe you were in the military. But as a country, we've lived in peace all of our life. And so when we say the church is at war, we don't know what that means. We're not living in third world countries where they're literally dying for their faith where they have to be super discreet, maybe even secretive about the worship of God. We have this incredible freedom to worship the Lord until this thing called cancel culture happened. And then all of a sudden we got really super quiet. And like Lambert, we kind of stepped back and we did what everybody else, we ran to, you know, to our corners of safety. But I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit's moving and something's beginning to snap inside of the church. And there's a reminder, a remembrance, a realization of who God's called us to be and how he's called us to run. And that's where we're going to start today. We're going to talk about the fact that the church is a who, not a what. And let me tell you what the goal is. The goal is for us to begin today. We won't do it all in one session, but to begin from the inside to the outside to rediscover who God's called us to be as members, as participants of this thing that he's called the church. And, and here's what I want to do first. I want to focus on what the Bible says about the church and let us go back to the word of God and kind of get a fresh look, maybe a, a first look for some of you. But, but I need to put at least three different cultural norms out there so that they can be fresh in our mind uh, so that we can understand as we're looking at what the Bible says we are, that there's things out there that are being accepted, that are being uh, touted, that this is not, this is, that's, those, those are what we're not. That the Bible says this is what we're not, but we've just got things so confused that we just accept it because, well, I, I guess that's what everybody thinks, so I guess this is how church is. And so before I, 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 I look, list these three things and we look at them real quick, again, I, wanna, I, want, you, I want you to know this. It's not personal. 
These are the kind of teachings that are going to be so strengthening and, and build us up to become really, really strong, but they're like the meat and, and vegetables. They're not the funny, fun desserts. They're not the, you know, the super sweet things that we tend to gravitate towards. And so we're going to get a little meaty here. And I want you to know when I start listing some of these things, it's not personal. From the bottom of my heart, the Lord's standing as my witness. I don't have any individuals in mind when I'm saying this. But I'm making a big deal about it because I know when I start reading these, some of you are going to be going, oh, is he talking about me? No, no I'm not. I'm talking about something that's in culture. And if it's begin to pervade how you think, then let the Holy Spirit bring some correction and, and bring some adjustments so you can live the way God wants you to. But don't think it's personal with, with your pastor. It's not, I, I love you to pieces. I really, really do. The second reason that I'm bringing it up is so that, again, it can be etched on the forefront of our mind. It can be like this overlay so that we don't have to focus on these three things now. We can focus on what the Bible says. But we're not missing the connection between these three erroneous, acceptable truths and what the Bible actually teaches. We'll be able to individually, as it applies to us, as the seed or maybe some of the weeds have gotten confused in our heart, we'll be able to connect these dots. And so it's a strategy and it's one that I'm, uh, I'm thinking is going to work. Based on the looks on some of your faces, this is a great time to add another layer of confidence. Why don't you look at somebody, at least one person, smile and say, I love my pastor. Go ahead and say that. Go ahead. Okay. Now keep that on the forefront of your mind too, because that's really important. And listen to me, your pastor loves you or I wouldn't be teaching this. I'd run away from this stuff, right? I'd be talking about stuff that I know is going to make you excited and going to make you happy and going to make you love me, love me, love me, even though it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to prepare you for what's happening out in the world, and it's not going to make you strong and straight in a relationship with Jesus. But I love you, and I know that you love me too. That includes you guys online. I love you too. And, uh, and so here we go. So here's the first cultural norm that we have to confront, and, and it really captures in this saying that, well, I am the church. I am the church. And it's said by individuals. Sometimes it's said by a group of people, you know, maybe a, what we would call a connect group. Now, I'm not talking about church plants. I'm not talking about, you know, house churches that are, are by necessity or by instruction by the Lord. And th those are legitimate. I'm not criticizing that. I'm talking about individuals or a group of individuals inside of a local gathering church that begin to lean into this spiritual independence. And that leads to, well, we don't have to come to church all the time. Well, we don't really have to do the things that the church that God's put us in. We don't really have to engage that and really listen. We can just kind of feed from every little stream because I am the church. We are the church. And listen to me, I'm telling you, that's just absolutely not a truth in the Bible. It's not. Now, individually and in groups of people, that's a vital part of the church. A vital part of the church. But we have to be really careful because part of this customization that we see happening in our society has pervaded the church. That's why we have so many people that would just rather be in their own comfort zone, in their PJs, on their couch, watching something online because after all, it's just me and Jesus. I'm the church. That is not Bible teaching. It's absolutely not correct, and we're going to look at that today. Part of the reason that that, that's not, that, that that can't be true is because the Bible emphasizes, even though we're not a building, that doesn't mean the Bible, that the church doesn't have structure. The church has God-ordained structure. 
that is set up for our benefit collectively, for your benefit as church members. And the Bible talks about the fivefold ministry and the leadership, the elders, and, and, and those that are designated to help lead people as being gifts from the Lord to the church to help edify and grow. It would be like a family, you know, having three or four kids and everybody's got their own little bedroom, but nobody really has any interacting with each other. Just every once in a while, maybe Christmas would come together. And, but listen, the part of a family unit is that we learn to grow together. Everything we're going to need out there happens as we learn it in close proximity here. Not always fun, never super clean, always really messy, but, it, but it's, it's a confined, it's a quarantined environment, if you will, or it's supposed to be so that a family can grow up and be raised and we can gain all the things that we need to be effective out there. It's not much different in the church. I don't want you to hear legalism. I don't want you to hear that I'm trying to keep people trapped at this church. I'm saying God has a structure, and the structure that he built is for our good collectively, for your good individually, and that structure starts by us realizing I'm not the church. I'm part of the church. I may have a group of people that we, we just we enjoy, and we have certain passions. They're part of the church, but they're not the church either. And we have to recognize this is something in the culture that is taking away, it's isolating people and it's weakening the church at large. And we're going to have to look at that today. Number two, here's another thing that people will say, I can be part of the church and yet not actively involved in the church. Now, let me give you two answers on that one. The answer is technically yes, but scripturally no. And, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, it's possible for people to attend church and yet never really engage or be involved in church. That, that is possible, but that's not scripturally healthy or scripturally accurate. In fact, if I can just say this, that's kind of like saying just because I have a body part that's still attached, even though it's not functioning, even though this arm, you know, has, has no function, I, it's lost all the nerve endings and it's still there. It hangs there and it's got some blood flow to it. So it, it looks like it's okay. But you know, I'm kind of dangling around like this. It's like saying, well, it's okay because I'm still there. It's not okay. It's not, it's not part of the, the body of Christ. And I'm not saying that to build the church first. I'm saying that because it's not healthy for the individual. When, when you see somebody and one of their body parts is not functioning like it's supposed to, you, you don't immediately think about the person, you think about the body part. What's wrong with their arm? What's wrong with that one eye that's not twitching? What, how, how come they can't hear out of one ear? You're curious about that. You may not ask because it may not be you know, in protocol, but you're curious about what happened there because we know that healthy bodies have all of their parts and all of their members present and functioning. That's the definition of healthy. But somehow in the church, in today's church, we've just kind of adopted this idea that church is just all about how many people attend the building and then turn around and walk out. That's not scripturally what the church was ever designed to be for. It's not. The church is supposed to be a functioning body. And, and because of that, we have this displacement of responsibility, this thing called the Pareto principle in leadership where at 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And 80% of the people are happy to let those 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 
But, but that's never God's design. You'll see this. And let me tell you who it hurts first. God will come in and God will, by into a large margin, make up the difference. But what it hurts are the individuals who are not fully engaged in what God's called them to do and thus not being able to grow and thrive from the inside to the outside. Not only that, when we get to eternity, it hurts a second time because we have not laid up rewards in heaven. And that's real, by the way. This, this is a real opportunity. And so the scriptures talk about that. Now, let me clarify here. I'm not saying that there's not room for people to come into the church and to have a time of discovery. Sometimes that takes a while. What if it takes a few months? What if it takes a little longer? What if people come from a burnout or from an abusive situation and they need a time of rest and restoration? Listen, all of those things are what the church is all about. That's so important. And so I don't want anybody to feel like, well, there's no room for that. You just have to march you know, right in and, and get, get, get your work clothes on. That, that's not at all what the scriptures teach. But let me just tell you what else is real. And we all know it on the inside. There comes a time where you know that you know that you know this is the church where God wants you to be. And you also know that you are recovered and restored and rested enough and you'll begin to hear the Holy Spirit say, time to get involved, time to get to work. And the reason is because not that God needs a labor force. Listen, God can do this whole thing by himself, but he privileges us to be involved so that we can then be exercising and we can grow and develop in here so that we can be everything we need to be out there. Some scholars have attached to that Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then you watch all of the other stuff just begins to roll the way it's supposed to. But we flip that to the point that we don't have time for the kingdom of God and his righteousness because we're so busy trying to do good things out there. No condemnation, just something we have to look at and confront because it's pervasive, it's accepted, right? Here's the third thing, is for us to come back to the realization that while the church is about, you know, organizing affinity groups and, and connecting and building relationships and wanting to do life together, we're, we're certainly about, you know, wanting to be sensitive and, and meeting the needs of the culture and the community around us. We want to be about humanitarian and, and benevolence efforts, and we have to be about all that. The church is really at its, its initial heartbeat, not just about those things. It's not a series of metrics where we tend to check boxes. We have attendance, we have buildings, we have cash, we have benevolent things, and we just check off the list of all the do-good stuff. It's not a bless me club. It's not even a bless others club. The church is a place where believers, by the way, who have spent time, who are learning to spend time in the secret place, come together for the purpose of worshiping God, inviting his living presence here and then taking that living presence and ministering to other people, ministering to one another so that the church can be built up and mature. And this is really, really important because if we can learn to understand that secret place, building from the inside, bringing that to the, to the gathering place and engaging and letting the whole body begin to do what it's supposed to do, then listen to me, nothing can stop you as an individual or us as a group of believers from being effective in the public place. You can't hold it in. You don't need to hold it in because you're not having to fabricate it. You're not having to somehow artificially, you know, remind yourself and pump yourself up and, and talk yourself into, well, I really should say something, but I don't know if I really, you, you, it, this, it just flows. You're, you're a light bulb. You just shine, 
right? You're salt. You can't help it. You get spilled and you season. Everybody knows who put salt on my food. You just can't help it. But this happens as we learn these in three individual places, secret place, and we begin to come back, what did God mean for the gathering place? And then finally, we can take it out to the public place. If we try to artificially manufacture any of those, it doesn't work. It becomes religious. It becomes routine. And that's where people get, you know, burnt out. And that's where people have no taste for it. And we've got to be really, really careful that we are following God's model. Okay, with that being set then as this foundation, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. And let's see where it all started. It started on a hilltop with uh, Jesus and 12 guys that he was talking to. And he makes this kind of outrageous statement at the time. They thought he knew what, or they thought they knew what he meant. But they didn't, at least not completely. And so we're going to begin to explore from there. Matthew chapter 16, we're starting in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea, Philippi, uh, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man is? We could say it this way. What, what's the buzz in the culture? What's the definition in the culture? What are other people saying? You know, kind of what's the scroll on social media? What are other people that you know? What's their impression? What's their definition? And verse 14, so they answered, they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others, Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I wish we had time to go through those because each of those represented a specific group that had a specific leaning or an emphasis. Verse 15, Jesus then said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately answered back, I would imagine with a smile on his face and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say, everybody say, also say. So the first thing he said was, you are right, but not because you're smart. Not because you made some keen observation. You're right because something happened on the inside and the Holy Spirit pulled back a curtain and you know something that you know it, that you know it. You just don't know how you know it, but you know it. To the point that you said it and Jesus said, man, that right there, you're onto something right there. But he didn't stop. He also said to Peter that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. The word Peter there is the Greek word Petros and it comes from, uh, he says, on this rock I will build my church. The word rock is the word Petra and Petros means a small chip off the block. And he says, listen, there's something that you just caught from the Lord. God, God revealed this to you. You know that you know that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. You don't know how you know that. You can't prove it to anybody, but you just have this conviction on the inside. He said, and because of that, there's something that's solid that has now lodged in your life. There's a foundation now that you're going to be able to build. He said, and I'm going to take that foundation. I'm going to take those kinds of rock solid understandings and I'm going to build a broad foundation. And on that foundation, he said, I'm going to build my church. And he goes on, he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, most translations, some translations, especially the older traditional ones say hell, shall not prevail against it. Verse 19, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now again, there's so much of this verse, but there's a couple of things we have to capture. 
Because Jesus is affirming Peter that all of a sudden Peter recognizes, I know something. I don't know how I know this. I don't know when I first knew it, but in this moment, I know something. It's like the lights came on, the curtains pulled back, and I know that you are the son of the living God. And Jesus is not only affirming that what he knows is true, but he's affirming the, the way he knows it. You didn't get this from anything else. You got this because you spent time in the secret place or you opened up the secret part of your heart and the Holy Spirit has inspired that. And because of that, you've got a boulder in place that's going to begin to make your life rock solid now. And Jesus went on and said, because of that, he said, I want you to know that that's the foundation that in, in, in revelations, in understanding people being convicted of that thing, that's the first block of the foundation that I'm going to use. And I'm going to build an entire church. I'm going to find a, I'm going to build a bunch of people and they're all going to rally around that particular truth. He said, I'm going to empower them. I'm going to work through them. And he called them his church. In fact, let's look at verse 18, the back half again, and let, let, let's just all read this together. Okay. Now don't be shy. This is from the Bible. Let's read this out loud, but let's read it loud. Like we're proud of what Jesus first established because we're part of this now. Everybody, let's read this together. Ready? I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. That was a fantastic warm-up. Now let's read it again like we really believe this. Ready? I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So a couple of things we want to notice here. First, Jesus said, I will build my church. Remember, he's standing on a mountain with 12 guys. And they're like, okay, like, what, what is that? Only one of them at this point has this rock solid understanding inside that Jesus is actually the Christ, or we would say the Messiah, the son of the living God, the one that had been promised all throughout uh, Jewish history. He doesn't even know how he knows that. He just knows it. So kind of with a, you know, a puffed out chest, like, yeah, I know something, even though he knows that he doesn't know how, to, how he knows it, and he knows they know he doesn't know how he knows it, because he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? But he does know something. And so he nails that, but Jesus goes on and says, yep, and that is, will solidify your life, and on that on understanding, on that spiritual revelation, that, that solid understanding, he said, I'm going to build this thing called the church, and we read that, and what seems obvious to us is that, the, you know, he was rallying a group of people to himself. He's building a gathering of people that will follow him and that will believe in him. But that's not exactly what the disciples heard. That, I mean, they knew that it was part of that. But when we have this word church in Matthew 16 translated, it comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And this is a compound word. The first part of the word ek means out, and the second part of the word klesia means to call. When you put it together, it literally means people who are called out or people who are summoned to a, to a purpose. In secular Greek, it was used pretty commonly to describe a movement. It would be a people that gathered around a political idea or people that gathered around a humanitarian effort. Anything that people could join and they kind of moved together as a group, they moved together as a unit, that was called an ecclesia. And so when the disciples heard Jesus say, upon that understanding that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, I'm going to find a group of people that all 
understand the same thing, that all have the same connection, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create a movement moving them towards me. They understood that, however... In, at that particular time, they were drawing from the Old Testament and they thought what Jesus was creating, what he was announcing, was he was going to create a movement that would overthrow the Roman government. Because they weren't the bright, shining nation of Israel that they were at the pinnacle of their Old Testament times. They were underneath the Roman, the, the Roman rule right now. And so they thought, okay, here it comes. Because we've always known when Messiah comes, he's going to be like another King David. He's going to lead this giant army in revolt and once again capture our independence. We're going to be a strong and a proud nation once again. And the world's going to know we are favored by God. Because God delivered us like he did from Egypt, like he's done from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all the way through the Old Testament. That's what they thought. And that's why later on as he's walking with them, they would say things like, hey, they're not really doing it our way. Should we call down fire right now? Should we just go ahead and destroy all of them? Because this is what's what we're all about, right? That's why at, at some point when we're getting close to the, to the betrayal, they're looking to gather up literal swords. That's why Peter pulls out his sword and cuts someone's ear off. That's why Peter says, no, you're not going to go to Jerusalem and die. In fact, if anybody's going to die, I'm going to die defending you because they were ready to give their lives up for the cause. That's also, you know, qualifies why Peter denied Jesus three times. It's not because Peter was cowardice. Peter was demoralized. You said you were going to gather an army, at least that's what we heard, and you were going to deliver us from the Romans, and we were going to be the strong, victorious, prominent nation again, and then you go and surrender yourself to be killed. They, I mean, they were lost. They were demoralized. And so here Peter was, you know, that he said, I'll fight for you. I'll die for you. And Jesus said, no, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase. Okay, I'm going to expand a little bit. Jesus said, you, you don't even realize what's happening. But the situation's going to change. And by the time we get there, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny me. And Peter's like, not going to happen. But it did not because Peter had no courage, it did because Peter didn't understand. He knew Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, but he thought he was going to lead a physical army and literally deliver them in, in external circumstances, and they were once again, you know, go, going to be the, these triumphant. That's why the disciples would argue, well, when that happens, you know, who's going to be the highest in the court? Who's going to sit on the right hand? Who's going to be leading, you know, the administrative cabinet? Who's going to be the generals? They're arguing all the time about stuff on the outside that was never going to happen because they didn't understand because they didn't know who the church was. They just knew it was a gathering. It really wasn't until four centuries later when, uh, when, when a different Greek word, kurikakos, uh, was emphasized. And we find it a few times in the New Testament, like in 1 Corinthians 11, when it talked about the Lord's Supper. And we did that this morning, communion. But the, the word Lord's there was such a possessive word, such a passionate and a precious word that it literally meant this particular occasion, this particular partaking of elements literally is sacred and belongs to the Lord. That became more identified with the church. And the church became more known for the fact that they were Jesus' precious possession. That not only were they devoted followers of his, but they were passionately devoted to him personally. 
and to the purpose that he had. And as that Greek word came into the Latin and then went through the, the, to the German language and finally came to English, it began translated the church. And translators literally went back and even replaced the word ecclesia. Because it just made more sense now that we have a New Testament understanding. But it's important that we understand that because we begin to see a couple of things. When Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, these 12 guys kind of knew. They knew it was rallied around him. They just didn't really know. So when Jesus turned around and said, and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades, they thought that's the enemy, that's the Roman Empire. That's anybody who tries to lower our status in the earth because after all, we're God's chosen people. But what Jesus was trying to get across and what he literally said to Pilate is, my kingdom's not in this world. I'm not building a kingdom here. I'm building a kingdom that will literally supersede this one. And eventually cause this one to fade away and that kingdom will become prominent. And it took the disciples some time to even catch sight of that. But somewhere as the New Testament began to develop and the church began to evolve, we began to understand, okay, when he says the church, he's saying two things. Number one, he is talking about an ecclesia, people that are called to say, come out from the common culture. Don't keep living by the rhythms of everybody else and just say, Lord, bless me in these rhythms. He said, I'm calling you to come out here. I'm calling you to be separated. I'm calling you to devote yourself to a movement, to a kingdom movement. And that kingdom movement, by the way, has a purpose to it. In fact, Jesus identified that purpose again in verse 18 when he said, I'm not just building a church just to have a movement. It's not a bless me club. It's not kind of a social place where we can go and be refreshed and rejuvenated. It has those things in, in, in camaraderie and in fellowship and friendship. But he said, this is a place that is going to invade darkness going to enforce the sovereign rule of God and in doing so going to rescue and restore people's lives starting here but carrying through all the way in eternity. In fact, listen to the message translation. It says in verse 18, I will put together my church, a church so expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. That hasn't changed. And according to the New Testament, when we accept Jesus as our Lord, we're automatically plunged into this thing called the church. And as we plunge into the thing called the church, not only do we become personally aware that we are passionately possessed by the Lord, that we literally belong to him, we're in his family, we're citizens of heaven, we're people that are redeemed, he calls us brethren, he gives his life, he intercedes for us, all of those things are true, but that assignment or, or, or that, that passionate possession comes with an assignment. You can't separate the two. The two are one and the same. We are engaged as part of this, 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 this kingdom advancement that the Lord is desperate to happen around the earth because people's eternity are literally hanging in the balance. Because the enemy is so deceptive and he's so slick that he's literally tearing people's lives, people's families, people's marriages, snatching their children out from, from, from the teachings and all that the parents developed in them, snatching them out. And the, the, the church is supposed to be the buffers. We're supposed to be the ones that stand and say, nope, not on our watch. Nope, not our kids. No, that's not going to happen. But the church has forgotten who they are. The church now just runs for, to an occasional here and there when they feel like they need a little pick-me-up 
or they don't want to feel quite as guilty and they're not understanding they are passionate possessions of the Lord and they are automatically engaged in the assignment. Now that, that's, that's kind of the big reconstruction, redefinition that we have to get. And from there, when you begin to understand that, you experience what Peter did. The Holy Spirit can come now and pull back the curtain and as you begin to study the Bible, you see it come alive. Now it's personal. Now it's not what's happening in a group of believers on a Sunday morning. Now it's not what the preacher's doing, what the pastor's doing, what the evangelist's doing. It's, I'm, this is what I'm part of. I actually have a part to play in this. And so from there, this won't take me very long, but I'm going to walk through four quick metaphors now. So important that we took the time to reestablish that, or we could walk through these metaphors and you would hear them with a Teflon. You would hear them not really understanding the context, the foundation that you were supposed to understand them in. You'd hear them from kind of the culture and you'd be like, oh yeah, I understand that. I get that. But I want you to hear it with fresh ears this morning. Here's four different metaphors that, uh, that we see throughout scripture. Now there's more than four, but here's at least four of them. The first one is the church is his body. The church is his body. I've already alluded to this earlier, but the, the scriptures use the, the metaphor or the picture of a physical body because, again, there's not very many things that picture the intricate weaving together and the collective dependence that a physical body has on every other part of the body. It's dependent on the internal organs to do what they're supposed to do. It's dependent on the circulatory system to get not just blood, but the blood that's oxygenated just the right levels and carrying the different minerals and nutrients to the different parts. It's dependent on the head to be able to rightly discern and understand and think clear and get the right rest so it can send the right signals to the right places. And it's, it's so intricately woven and complex that... Medical science has been studying it for hundreds, thousands of years and are still figuring stuff out. It's complex. But the Bible says that we're a physical body because even though we're not a building, we're complexly and intricately put together by the Lord himself and we do have a structure. And the structure is very important for us to understand that we are part of this structure and Jesus is the head, the living word. He's the brain, the command center, that he's the one that, that's giving instruction to the rest of the body. Now, in some scriptures, it's talking about the universal body, the church worldwide, and it spans time. It's talking about from the book of Acts all the way till we all go to be with Jesus. But most of scripture is talking about local church. That's why it's split up into letters of individual churches. That's why when you get to Revelation, he's talking to seven different pastors at seven different churches that, that kind of imitate or kind of give us a picture of different flavors and different assignments of different churches and why often so many, so many churches seem a little different than the rest. They're all centered on Jesus being the head. They all have the word of God at the forefront and at the center of their commands and yet... They have a little bit of a different feel, a different assignment because Jesus adopts them and adapts them to the cultures and to the, to the things that he needs to get done. So most of the time it's talking about, the, but, but when we talk about the fact that we're the church, whether you're talking universally or you're talking in a local church, Jesus declares, I'm the head and everybody else is the body. That's why in Acts chapter 9, when he, uh, when he confronts Saul on the road to Damascus, who is tearing people's lives up. 
He's been sanctioned by the religious leaders to go and to find people that have confessed their, themselves as Christians and literally to just rip their lives apart, take their businesses away, split their families up. In some cases, they were killed on the spot. In other cases, they were drug away and martyred in front of everybody. Some of them made it to the Colosseums. And we hear about, you know, those mass murderings that were taking place. All of this was people like Saul, and he was the one ones leading him. And Jesus confronts Saul, and he asks him this question, why are you persecuting me? And Saul could have said, I'm not persecuting you. Well, no, you are. You're persecuting my body. I'm the head, but they're the body. This is how personal that he sees it. This is how intricately connected that, that we're seeing this. And this means that the church is not just an organization, although organization's an important part. The church is an organism. The church is a network, a, a complex network of living individuals who are, are, are moving in harmony one, with one another under the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish the thing that God has called him to accomplish. We won't look there this morning, but if you can write down, and those of you that are taking notes, in Ephesians chapter 4, this is why he talks about when the church comes together, they're given gifts in leadership and gifts in people to help instruct them. All of those are working underneath the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's so that the church as an organism can grow up. It says they're not supposed to stay immature, and it defines immaturity that, well, they're just nibbling here and nibbling there, and every time something new and fun comes through, they're chasing after that and forgetting what the mainstays are, and, and he says, no, you, you have to grow up and be strong, and he says the way you do this is you allow the Lord to fitly joint you together, and that's literally a, a, one, a, a phrase in English, but it's one Greek word, and it's talking about the kind of, of, of weaving together that we see in the complexity of our body. Body, the way the DNA comes together, the, the way that it's hard to separate the, circul the circulatory system and how it's dependent on the heart and the lungs and to come together in a perfect harmony to blend the blood and the oxygen. And th there's such an intricacy there, but it takes the Lord to all move us together. And it takes us realizing there's not one body part that exists that doesn't have a function. And if one of them decides, yeah, it's just not really me. I'm not into that. You know, I have some other things. I just want to go there and be fed. Well, again, as grim as it is, the illustration is that then we, we become a collection of body parts of which only a few of them are actually working. I mean, there, there's some literal pictures, and, and I don't want to go there because I don't want to be offensive to anybody who's dealing with some, you know, medical issue or some health issue, but I'm telling you, there's, there, there are things, I don't know what you call them anymore, what the politically correct word is, but there are handicaps or medical conditions now that are quite obvious to us, and our heart goes out. We just don't stop to think about the body of Christ and whether or not it's handicapped. And whether or not we're contributing to the handicap, drawing the, drawing the nutrients, drawing the blood, drawing the oxygen, drawing, 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 but not giving anything back. And that makes it more difficult for the body of Christ to function. Here's number two, the church is his temple. His temple. And, and we know this individually. Again, this is kind of back to that I am the church. Well, individually, we're the temples of God. And that's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that our body's the temple of God, that we're bought and paid for. We're the price. We don't belong to ourselves. And as Americans, we, you know, we kind of get that, but we don't really want to get it because we like our independence and we like to be able to you know, build our own life and our own structure. We don't like to think that we literally belong to somebody else, that we're living in a rented house. 
This belongs to the Lord. We're, we're living in, he's the landlord of the house. And what he does and what we do, that has to be, you know, a coordinated uh, effort underneath his leadership. But Ephesians 2 goes on and says, when you put those individual buildings together, we become a giant building or we become the house of God. And it's really important that we understand this because the church throughout the word of God, uh, it is, it, it, it's not really... It's, it's not really, you know, designed just to take a posture to try to contradict whatever the culture is out there. That, that's not really the mission. Although some churches kind of get so focused, you would think that's their mission. They're almost political, right? They're, they're almost uh, uh, resistant, almost rebellious in that sense. And, and they're not totally wrong. But it's not the church's primary job to counteract the culture. It's the church's primary job to understand and live in the God-given kingdom standards to the point that when culture gets so far out of whack, there's an obvious conflict there. And with as much love and as much grace and as much wisdom and sensitivity as we can, we won't bow. We'll try to accept everybody. We'll try to demonstrate the grace and the mercy and the open arms of a loving Savior who wants to welcome anybody in and who, who will love generously and indiscriminately. But at the, at, at the end of it, all of it, but, but we won't bow. Because we're a holy temple. We're, we're a representative of a people that are not just dedicated to a cause, but we're dedicated to a person. And that person is, lives in us and is to be reflected through us. If we live the way God's supposed to, I'm not saying people will like it. In fact, people that are determined to walk away from the light will not like it. They will absolutely deplore it. But if we are living the way that Jesus wants us to live and we're holding to the standards of the word of God and we're walking in a disciplined connectedness of the kingdom, then listen to me, the Bible says that Jesus literally comes into view. Not like in a picture, a metaphor, you know, where you see the picture of the bearded guy. But the way that life's supposed to look, the way people are supposed to be treated, the way we're supposed to be processing and making decisions, the way we're supposed to be courageous when life, when everybody else is, is freaking out, kind of we, we come into our own spiritual Lambert, right? And we recognize who we are. That's how we do it when we become this holy temple. It, this is not a social club. This is not where we come in every day and how can we do fun things and, you know, and, and, and just, do, just do little excerpts so people just feel like, that was great. You know, I feel a little bit happier. And listen to me, that's not the primary responsibility. I hope that we can, we can add those elements. But at the end of the day, our job is to represent the holiness, the separateness, the sacredness of this great king and this God. And we have a set of parameters that we use to do that. And you can see that again in Ephesians chapter two, it talks about that we are a holy temple for the Lord and we're fitly joined together by him. And we're functioning in accordance with what he said. And as we do that, people can see here's number three, the church is his covenant people. Now th this highlights the fact that as God's people, that especially in the New Testament, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we're now functioning under a new and a better covenant. We did a whole series on blood covenant and just for practicality, we called it a contract. And this particular contract is better than the Old Testament because first of all, it includes the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit that lives with each of us individually all the time.
And he makes available the power of God and the wisdom of God. Not only that, we have at our access all of the rich promises of God that we should be tugging on. We should be building a case in our prayer time and saying, Lord, this is what you promised. This is what you said. This is what I can see the Holy Spirit is directing me towards. And we should be building a case so we could step out and we could legally take authority over all the things the enemy's trying to do and say, nope, not in my family. Nope, not in my life. You don't get to do that. But because the church has forgotten who it is, it becomes challenging. Let me just kind of show you a fun little picture, okay? Because this, this will be something that's interesting. In the, in the Old Testament, the whole tribe of, the whole nation of Israel started with 12 tribes, 12 brothers. And they began to form these tribes as they grew and had families and they grew. And those 12 tribes became the 12 tribes of Israel, which eventually turned into the nation of Israel. And we watch the nation of Israel rise and fall and rise and fall, always dependent on their remembrance of who they were and living out the calling that God has for them. When we get into the New Testament, it's not lost that Jesus chooses 12 guys. And those 12 guys are like the 12 brothers who started the old, the, the 12 tribes, the old nation of Israel. These 12 guys now become the new first, first seeds of the new covenant. And they then begin to grow and they turn into this new, na- new spiritual nation that we call the church. Only the church has now spread much wider. It's around the globe, literally. People that are not just called to come and say, yeah, I believe Jesus is Lord, but are committed to him personally and passionately in the face of persecution, in the face of uncomfortability, of consequences, they will continue to march forward and declare and preach that Jesus is the Lord, invade darkness and say, we're not going to allow the enemy to rule the day, but we're going to step in and say, no, 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 we love you guys, but Jesus said... But the Bible said, and we're going to watch God redeem our families and redeem our situations and circumstances just like he promised he would because that's what the nation of Israel was for and that's what the church is for, to be a witness to the whole world. Here's what it looks like when people commit themselves to God. Here's what it looks like when people aren't just coming to church because it's Sunday, but they're coming to church because they believe that Jesus is a living Savior and they're committed not just to him personally, but to the cause that he's been working on for over 2,000 years. And we become this contracted, this covenant people where God guarantees us in his blood, if you do what I'm asking you to do, I will do what I promised I would do for you. And this is where we're at. Here's number four, and I give you the last one here. Number four is we become his instrument. And this literally is playing back into Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when it says that I'm going to build a church and the gates of Hades or hell will not prevail against it. And he goes on and he says this, and, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Some people kind of use that really loosely, but really when you read it in the actual language, the, the context is flipped. It's not whatever I bind on earth, then God has to do it in heaven because he promised. It's the flip. I'm committed to him and whatever I can see that he's bound or locked up in heaven, I'll lock it up on earth and God will honor that. And, and this is how it works. When, when we're walking in the secret place and we're coming into the gathering place and we know we're there because we're called to be different, not just for different sake, not to be weird, not to be mystical, not to somehow live above, you know, the common man and nobody really understands. No, we're supposed to be right down in the middle of, of life that's happening, but we're light and we're salt. 
And Jesus said, because of that, I'm going to use you as instruments in the earth. Listen, you're my body. You're my temple. You're my covenant people. And in spite of all the weaknesses and the immaturities and all the imperfections and all the people that are, you know, not engaging and, and, you know, kind, kind of here and there and everywhere, God still says, I'm going to use you to step out into the earth and to establish and keep moving forward the advancement of the sovereign rule of this eternal king. And he said, I don't care what hell throws at you. I don't care what politics do. I don't care what the economy does. I don't care if the whole world comes against you. He said, they're not gonna be able to stamp it out. And we saw that happen in the book of Acts because the persecution got poured on and the, the, the government made a decision. We're stamping this out forever. And all they did when they put their foot down and stamped it, the embers spread and sparked everywhere when all around the world. It's happening today in communist countries. It's happening today in our own political. You don't see it because it's not making most of the news. But I'm telling you, the harder the enemy stamps down, the more the church is coming alive. The more the church is beginning to realize, wait a minute, this is not what we're called to. That's not what Jesus said. And we're stepping up. Let me, let me read you this last quote, and I'm literally ending here. This comes from Lesson 10 from the series we did towards the end of last year, Living an Empowered Life. And here's what, here's what the, the lesson, the workbook says. Most Christians today see themselves as mere subjects of heaven instead of authorized representatives of Jesus. Accordingly, their prayers lack the bold confidence of one who's been given the kingdom key ring loaded with the promise of God that grants them spiritual access into circumstances and situations where evil influences need to be evicted and God's promised blessings need to be invoked. This is who God's called us to be. But it all starts with not forsaking the assembling of yourselves. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.